Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We're glad to have you with us yet again for another exciting discussion. And uh, today we've got a guest, and I'll introduce him in a moment. But uh, before I go any further, uh, because we don't assume that everybody knows who we are, the regulars will introduce themselves. So, as I may have said already, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and I've written a bunch of stuff. I belong to different organizations, but enough about me. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Tom. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other places. That's right. right. We, We all have many hats these days. We're in different spots. Anyway, today uh, we, we, we want to jump into our, our show, uh, but before we do, I wanted to let uh, listeners know that, uh, that I'm going to be uh, leading a uh, discussion group, a book discussion uh, group here in Connecticut. So, so uh, the discussion is going to be on Vindus, uh, pronounce it for me again. Vindicii contra tyrannos. Vindicii. <laughs> I've had, I've already started against tyrants. <laughs> that's right, that's it's right. only three o'clock, Chris. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I've got my beer. I'm working on it. So, uh, defense of liberty against uh, tyrants, and it's a uh, it's a reprint, of course, of something that was written in 16th century. Correct, Glenn? Yeah. We're talking 15... 1579. Yeah, and uh, and it was uh, in the aftermath of the Saint Bartholomew's Day massacres in France. And uh, this particular treatise uh, was written anonymously, but uh, it had a, there was a pen name, but we're pretty sure that this is uh, not a real person. Uh, uh, is it uh, Junius Brutus is uh, the name. Anyway, uh, our own Glenn Sunshine has written the introduction to the book. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll get Glenn to show up at one of these book discussions. But we're actually going to engage in a little civil disobedience, and we're going to actually meet in person without masks but at an, an undisclosed location, so the, the authorities won't be able to find us. Yes. But uh, if you would like to be a part of that, that's right, that's right. if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, just let me know, and uh, we'll, we'll figure out a way to get the information to you. But that's coming up. So today uh, on the podcast, we've got a special guest, as I think I mentioned, uh, S.M. Hutchins, Steve Hutchins. Uh, he's one of the editors at, uh, at Touchstone Magazine. By the way, if you hear some thunder in the background, it's because we've got some pretty heavy-duty storms kind of cruising through here in Connecticut right now. And uh, if I get cut off or any one of us gets cut off, we'll just all have to kind of pull in and just keep this thing going. But uh, Steve uh, is a friend. Uh, he's been an editor to me. He's uh, looked at some of the stuff I've written. In fact, you did a review of uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, uh, for Touchstone, if I remember correctly, Steve, oh. and uh, if you you don't sounds remember. right. <laughs> <laughs> you see a lot of stuff, but anyway, uh, uh, we're glad to have uh, Steve with us. Now, you know, when I think about resources that have been really helpful to me in my life, Touchstone is really at the top. I think uh, Touchstone and First Things are my favorite journals, and if I had to. If I had only one journal I could have, in other words, if there was mail delivery on a deserted island in the middle of the Pacific and I could pick one magazine, uh, it'd be Touchstone. It'd beat out first things. I want you to know that, Steve. Wow. Uh, we, lo- 
Yeah, we love first things, but we, we love Touchstone even more. And I've been published in Touchstone maybe, I don't know, four or five times, I guess. But uh, anyway, uh, it's been a great encouragement to me. And there are some uh, really significant people there uh, who participate on a regular basis uh, in the uh, writing for Touchstone. Let me just uh, take you to the, to the uh, table of contents here in this latest issue. We've got Hunter Baker, who's down at uh, Union, Union University. There's... Uh, of course, Steve. Ken Myers, who is the, is the voice of Mars Hill Audio uh, and the mind behind it. Um, we've got uh, Tony Esselin, who is someone we all love and appreciate. And uh, there are many others. So I won't say anything more about who participates or who's written for Touchstone, beside the fact that if you go to the list of authors who have written for Touchstone, it's like a who's who in terms of conservative uh, and Orthodox Christian writers, and both uh, Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox are all three of those. So anyway, Steve, uh, when I was introduced to Touchstone, I, I think it was in the early 90s, when you guys were just kind of getting off the ground, I received uh, this uh, direct mail piece. You know how that is. You get this direct mail piece that has this thing where you can you know, write on the back of it and send it in at the expense of the person who sent it to you, and you can subscribe to something. Anyway, I remember that vividly because it had, you know, uh, this, this, essentially this, this message. This is a journal of mere Christianity. And it had, you know, a, a photograph of C.S. Lewis. And there was, I think, a, it was actually a kind of a collage of photographs uh, that were intended to give you a sense of what the magazine was about. And I subscribed to it at that point, allowed my subscription to lapse. I've done that maybe two or three times. I've self-flagellated after I've done that and resubscribed, but uh, I've been a subscriber now for I don't know how long continuously. But uh, tell us a little bit about about the magazine, uh, maybe some things that I've left out and things we ought to know about. Well, uh, Touchstone's uh, origins are swathed in the uh, ambiguities of a pretty long history now. Uh, it, uh, it published its first issue um, as an occasional newsletter of a religious order that called itself the Barit Christian Union. Uh, I'll hold up a, 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 a the front page of volume one, number one. Okay. So it was called Touchstone from the start? From the start. Yeah. But the subtitle changed several times. It began uh, as a, a journal of ecumenical orthodoxy. Um, now, for many people, that's like a contradiction. That's like, you know, you, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was difficult for a lot of people to understand, at the very least, and we never found it entirely satisfactory. Uh, Robbie George, who's one of our senior editors now, said that our theme ought to be enemies of ecumenism unite. <laughs> <laughs> now, in, ca- in case you don't know who Robbie George is for our listening audience, uh, Robbie, Robbie George is a, uh, is a legal scholar, uh, jurisprudence at Princeton, and a very important uh, Christian academic. He holds a 
Woodrow Wilson's old chair, uh, the McCormick <laughs> chair of uh, jurisprudence at Princeton, which has always been a bit of a <clears throat> surprise to me because Princeton has no law school. Oh, really? Yeah. I, did, I didn't realize that. Uh, but it does have a professor of jurisprudence. Uh, <laughs> so. Someone's got to do it. Yeah. He's, <laughs> a, he's a devout Roman Catholic. And. Uh, one of those people who uh, was attracted to Touchstone and we to him. So, and we've had uh, our, <clears throat> he, he's a senior editor uh, now and uh, our relation is very cordial. Um, anyway, the title, um, Ecumenical Orthodoxy, tended to set off alarm bells with some and with others, um, uh, it was not very understandable. It did seem, as you say, like a contradiction in terms. But it's something that we used uh, from 1986 when the magazine came into existence until 1988, which was probably the most significant early year. Uh, that's when there was a, a retrospectively now a bit of a turn not in its interests or subject matter but its subtitle we decided that since uh, the theme of mere christianity was familiar and to all of us who were editors at the time and was a friendly term in much of the christian world we decided to change our name and use c.s lewis a lot more in our uh, advertisements, images of C.S. Lewis in our advertisement, uh, which is not, um, even though some of our Catholic and, uh, as it turned out, Lutheran friends tend to be uh, not all that familiar with C.S. Lewis, but uh, some of the Catholics are intimately familiar with C.S. Lewis and others don't. He's not on their regular reading list. Um, yeah, some it, of the Catholics I've known like to claim him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there is that. Um, it, it's not too difficult to do post-mortem. Uh, well, I, actually, I actually know a lot of Protestants who want to claim G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. yeah, by the way, uh, this will be fun for you to know. Uh, can't impress the people who uh, issued the uh, Christian Heritage Series, the book that I just read on Against Tyrants. Uh, Glenn did the interview. Uh, they, there was a, they reissued Orthodoxy, Chesterton's Orthodoxy, mm -hmm. with a foreword or an introduction by a Calvinist entitled Calvinistic Chesterton, or Chestertonian Calvinism. It's uh, N.D. Wilson, well, <laughs> Nate it's, Wilson. It, it, you, you, it's nice to know that uh, there's so much flexibility in Calvinism. <laughs> 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 well, everybody, wa everybody, wants, everybody wants Chesterton. Even yeah. when Chesterton hates you. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes feel that given a few more years of life, Chesterton might have become orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> he did kind of, was kind of moving. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I so we mean that, orthodox in terms of Eastern Orthodox. Oh, yes. Um, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> He's a mere Christian that mere Christians can resonate right. to. Right, right. Uh, but back to 1988, um, we changed our subtitle and that stuck. Um, 
even though we've had to do quite a bit of explaining and defense of that because um, the idea of mere Christianity is a Protestant idea. I think that it's very difficult to deny that because mere Christianity is to an Orthodox Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox is their church. Right, right, right. And there is no such thing as mere Christianity outside that church, those churches. However, uh, we have also found that uh, Catholics and Orthodox who respond well to the idea have their own theological ways of explaining the phenomenon <laughs> so that we don't have to spend a lot of time defending it to them. Right, <laughs> right, right. They, they, may not use, they may be uncomfortable with that terminology, but right. uh, they tend to like C.S. Lewis, understand him, grudgingly perhaps as a mere christian and uh all and uh, and claim him well the catholics tend to do that I, i've never heard the orthodox do that but they might um, right. but anyway he's he's not uh he's not a catholic or orthodox saint uh just a protestant saint right <laughs> Although he I, I would name him as my principal theological teacher if you want to know where my theology I feel, you know, I have a, read a lot more books than C.S. Lewis, but but he is a, uh, he provided me with the Catholic small c mind that I was grasping for in my life as a, as someone who was raised in an evangelical slash fundamentalist church and confronted with the the bible and not being able to understand why we interpreted it in certain places as we did mm -hmm. uh c.s lewis uh seemed to me to have a have a uh, have mastered uh something that my own uh, background had not and he would provided my and he sort of opened up the world to me and gave me breathing room. Right. Um, so he's he's probably the deepest influence on my thoughts. So when someone has difficulty with me, as they have for more than once, <laughs> and don't like my theology and want me to explain myself, I say, well, just read C.S. Lewis, and uh, I don't disagree with anything that he says. So <laughs> that's, that's right. That's a, that's a that's a great strategy. Now, I, I I'd like to give you know Glenn and Tom a little time to to sort of express their own thoughts about Touchstone, or maybe ask their own questions. I've got certainly a number of things I'd like to get to, and I'm sure you have some things, Steve, that you'd like to share. Let, let me finish 1988. Oh, sure, sure. And this is a bit facetious. But that's when my first article appeared. In <laughs> that's when everything changed. Yeah. And everything was up and up. <laughs> and, and also Pat Reardon. Oh, uh, yeah. That, really, so, really. I, I always thought that he was there from the start. Uh, well, he was, he was hovering about from the start. Okay. Um, and and uh, was, knew the people in Chicago, uh, the the Barit Christian Union people, and he had been invited there to speak, but he had not yet written anything for it. And he was still an Anglican or an Episcopalian at the time, and his earliest articles in Touchstone are about the crisis in the Episcopal Church. Which is ongoing and worse than ever. 
Yeah, well, it's not even a crisis anymore. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it just is what it is. Uh, anyway, one of his earliest articles was on was a classic called uh, "The Beached Whale," <laughs> in which he talked about this magnificent creature helplessly thrashing around on the beach, um, uh. and 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 slowly dying. Um, but it was a powerful metaphor, at least to a lot of us at the time. Right. Well, of course, he has a fascinating history. He's uh, now Orthodox. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about that in a minute. But, but Glenn and Tom, do you have any, any thoughts or questions for, for Steve? Um, yeah, I, I have one just out of sort of the history of it. Um, maybe some of our listeners would have this question. Um, you mentioned a lot of uh, people and names. Um, but for those of us, I, I, I was all, I've been familiar with the journal for a long period of time, but I really didn't start reading it until we connected Chris uh, with more depth and getting a subscription. So maybe some of that history, what, who would some of the figures be that write regularly besides, uh, of course, uh, Steve and, and uh, George and, and others that have mentioned? Maybe early on they don't write anymore or have kind of gone through that history. Well, it's a difficult question to answer with much precision because we are eclectic to the degree that we just publish what we like, uh, which has sent us, and uh, we have never done much uh, solicitation uh, of any any kind of writing, except the sort of thing that might go on between friends. Uh, yeah. Why don't you, you know, Touchstone would like you to write on this, right? Uh, we might ask them to do that. But we never paid much or anything. And so it has, yeah. to, it, it has to be a labor of love done by a <laughs> art. So, uh, but if you look at the list on our website of the people who have written for us, mm-hmm. uh, it's a... Uh, it's a remarkably large group of people. Um, and for the, the people who are writing most for us, uh, which include Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Evangelicals, and I would say, uh, and we're adding more Lutherans. We're getting more uh, interest from Missouri Synod Lutherans uh, <laughs> at the time. For a long time, our theory was on people like Lutherans and Southern Baptists and so forth, that they had deep enough resources within their own communities uh, so that they didn't really feel the need of a journal of ecumenical orthodoxy. And for a long time, I think that was, that, that was true. Uh, but... Um, and it's still to some degree true now, uh, but but for some reason we are getting more interest from Orthodox small old Lutherans, uh, which we're very grateful for because uh, we had some hard words for them, uh, even though we had a regular author, Gene Veith, who, who was who, who is a Lutheran, uh, and. Uh, and who wrote for us occasionally. But we're glad to see that happening. Uh, we're you know, getting a little better footing there. Touchstone for most of its history, in my estimation. Now, I'll add the, the, uh, 
caveat here that what you're hearing is touched on through my eyes. Um, I've been with it for a long time and I've got some, I, I've got a, a range of opinions of various intensities about, <laughs> about a number of its features. But for a long time, I think we were a primarily a magazine for people who were in transit between one form of the faith and another, hmm. usually from evangelicalism uh, to something else that was more historically grounded and liturgical. That's and I I, I leave it I. I leave that in sort of a rough, in rough uh, terms because that includes a lot of people. I mean, from moving from evangelicalism as it was, say, in the 40s through the right. 80s, moving to an older and deeper uh, and liturgically and sacramentally deeper uh, communion could mean mean moving to Lutheranism or reformed uh, reformed expressions of the faith, or Catholicism or Orthodoxy. Um, could it could it also mean Steve people who are just remaining put but are trying to to enrich their own tradition? You know, you know, you've got you do have a uh, you know people like uh, Marcos who's you know teaching in a Baptist institution writes for you guys pretty regularly. Yes. Um, and it seems to me that he's uh, trying to bring something of the riches of the tradition into that world that he's in. Is yes. that, is Lou that Marcos, fair to say? Lou Marcos yeah. understands what we're about. Right, right. Uh, and he's, a, he's an excellent writer. I can't think of ever um, rejecting anything he sent us or um, even doing any substantial editing on it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of <sighs> I haven't got a good idea, a good grip in these days upon just uh, uh, upon the profile of the people who are reading Touchstone. I used to be pretty sure about it being a transitional magazine that people took touchstone until they settled into orthodoxy or Rome, um, uh, fewer into, into a older Protestant uh, magisterial tradition, uh, but many of them going, for example, if you were in the Episcopal Church, you pretty much had to leave and go somewhere. Right, right. It's very, it's very doubtful uh, that very many of those people um, went to Lutheran, to another form of Protestantism. Almost all of those became Catholic or Orthodox. Um, but there are the people who just uh, appreciate Touchstone for, I hope, the quality of its writing and the variety of its authors. Yeah, well, that's certainly we true. Haven't, we haven't pulled them lately. Right. Um, well, I, I think that's true for me. I, I, you know, my impression as a person who's kind of come into the world of Touchstone uh, within the last, you know, eight years or so. I think maybe my first article published in Touchstone was maybe eight years ago. And uh, having spoken at one of the conferences, um, there's a sense in which um, you've got this marvelous 
confluence of of all of these uh, Christians who are who are socially conservative. That's one of the things I think that distinguishes a typical writer for Touchstone. Uh, and liter and, and there's a kind of literary and uh, theological uh, depth to the writing. Um, and I and I and I, I throw literary in there just because um, there are many journals out there where people have kind of gotten so narrowly focused upon the minutia of their particular theological system <laughs> that all they can do is debate the fine points of that particular system. Whereas when I, when I read Touchstone, I, you know, I'll come across stuff, uh, you know, that has to do with the Western canon. Almost every, I mean, this latest issue, there were two really rich articles on, on the liberal arts and uh, how, uh, you know, the liberal arts really need the Christian faith in order to work. So uh, I thought those were great. But I, but I think, too, that there's a kind of strata. I, you know, when I, when I get, uh, you know, out and, and, and sort of connecting with people from other theological traditions, and I mentioned Touchstone, if they kind of, their eyes light up and they're like, yeah, you know, I read that. I've been reading it for years. I, I, I have a sense that, that they're a particular, they're, they're, they represent kind of a, a part of their own tradition that's in touch with the larger Christian world and uh, has an appreciation for how their tradition fits into the larger Christian world. I think that's and, an accurate observation. Yeah. yeah. But for me, for me, it's been a marvelous experience. Like when I spoke at the conference on patriarchy, uh, you know, looking out, there were, there were Lutherans, there were Orthodox, there were Catholics, there were, there actually were a lot of reform guys there. I'm talking about, you know, you know, Presbyterians and such. And afterwards, the guys who approached me, uh, who really uh, had some really interesting things to say about my talk, were the Orthodox guys, the Eastern Orthodox guys, which uh, was fun. But anyway, I'm... I'm a lot of interesting parallels between the minds of the Reformed and of Eastern Orthodoxy. Yeah. Oh, we need to pick up on that, uh, but I want to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to return to that. But uh, Glenn, yeah, I know you want to... I probably don't have much to say about that today, <laughs> but it's something that I have thought from time to time. Okay. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and which, what would a bear's exploration. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, would, I, I would agree with that 100%. You know, one project that I have been contemplating, talking a little bit about with a guy named Ken Boa down in Atlanta, is attempting to do um, what I would describe as integrated theology, where it seems to me that there are elements of all of the traditions that are really strong. And our problem is that we tend to view them as being the exclusive way of approaching a particular theological idea and that we've got all the answers within our system. But for example, I don't know anybody who has thought moral theology through better than the Catholics. Um, the Orthodox have got incredibly important insights into a whole lot of things that are frankly gaps in most Protestant theology, although the reformers had a lot of that, it's been lost. You know, so what I would like to do as sort of an ultimate goal that I will never actually get to, is to try to develop a theology, a theological approach that integrates into it the best of all the various traditions. 
And, and you know, th it seems to me that this is absolutely the perfect project because everybody will hate it. <laughs> but, but, but it seems to me that that's a lot of what Touchstone does. I mean, not not one, so much the integrated side of it, but it, it, it's moving in that direction. One of the things that while you were, uh, while you were talking, Glenn, uh, that came to my mind uh, on the uh, similarities between the minds of the Reformed and the minds of Orthodoxy is that is they both tend to be Presbyterial minds. Um, they tend to operate on consensus more than uh, from a uh, uh, imperious, uh, dictatorial, yeah. monarchical. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're, they're aristocratic rather than monarchical. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah for example, the uh, the um, I know a lot of Baptists uh, who are who would be very comfortable papists. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what yeah. you mean by that. Yeah. I, I'm sure that many of our Baptist listeners are bristling right now. But he's, that, that's he's, not I, the Lord's anointed. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's it. I think that you do have in many, you know, sort of, it, the government ostensibly is congregational, but the way that the church actually functions is papist. <laughs> of course, that, that, that of course involves an exaggeration because uh, the Baptist polity uh, provides room so that all three elements that I, I think are necessary for the correct operation of the church, that is the presidential, the presbyterial, and the congregational uh, function are all working together in a proper way. Uh, I used to think there were three kinds of church. I used to articulate this when I was younger, but now I just think there's really one kind of church, and I think it's a one of the vestigia trinitatis, that you have within the Holy Trinity a monarchy of the Father, uh, but you also have a presbytery, let us call it, of the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father together, and uh, and that is also a form of a congregation. It's uh, it's an idea I, I haven't developed because I haven't the courage. <laughs> yeah, you get into those waters, and everybody's uh, getting back to Glenn's point. There's, there's always someone that's going to be after you. Oh yeah, well, uh, but, but anyway. Um, Another element that's worth considering of the relationship between Reformed and Orthodox, it seems to me, is that from what I've seen of the Orthodox, um, they wouldn't put it this way, but they seem to be very much in tune with things like the cultural mandate in a way that Catholics tend not to be. I mean, it's not universal, certainly, but um, in my experience, uh, I grew up Catholic and my sense was that the, you know, the church was sort of the church and it didn't matter whether you were in it or not. If you wanted to be in it, you could participate in it, but it was really the clergy, the priests and so on. That's what the church was. And so it, in a lot of ways, it has very little, if, you know, in, in terms of popular Catholicism, it has very little to say about your daily life. 
My sense in the Orthodox is that that's not true. I'm hardly an expert on this, but I sense with the Orthodox that that's not true, that they see the integration of spirituality into the broader life um, of, of you know, daily life, of, of quotidian life, uh, in a way that Catholics don't, that has at least some resonances with the cultural mandate. Yeah. Well, yes, I think so too. I also think that when <laughs> that there is room in practically all of the classical expressions of Christianity to get it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there's a lot of pressure um, in, in those histories that makes it very easy to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why one of the reasons why I appreciate the writing of Soloviev uh, so much, uh, Vladimir Soloviev. Yeah. Very early on in Touchstone's uh, history, well, he, he was sort of an outlying Orthodox writer. Uh, we published his short history of the Antichrist, uh, which is available, you can find it online. Uh, but it was a story of the last days uh, in which uh, the uh, persecution of the church brought together in an, a very um, beneficent and organic way, Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox uh, to, to uh, serve as a final witness against the world of Antichrist, a, a united Christian witness. There's a lot of 19th century romanticism in that idea, but it is also extremely a beautiful idea. Uh, and, uh, and I think that made an impression on a lot of us editors. I don't know who came up with that, but it was certainly a good thing to see in the early days of Touchstone, um, a, an Orthodox writer. Now there's, there's hardly anyone who would dislike a lot of things about the Touchstone project more than a, an Orthodox of the old believer variety. Uh, but uh, but Solo and Soloviev wasn't well received in his own day, uh, but he sort of looks like a prophet to people like us. Right. Yeah, when I when I look at not only the uh, the list of of writers, which has a pretty I think uh, you know fair sampling of. of reform people you know i know doug wilson's written for touchstone peter lightheart's written for touchstone and there are a number of other presbyterians and and uh reformed who've written for touchstone even me rc sproul never did yes <laughs> <laughs> although i remember that you you guys when he died you, you gave you you uh, wrote an appreciation for, well, for sproul we do believe he was a mere christian but even even more than that, I, I I do think that you guys uh, you know you guys uh, expressed your your uh, appreciation for him. Oh yeah, and, and respect uh, too. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, full full agreement with Touchstone is not is not a Touchstone of orthodoxy. <laughs> I I don't know if this is significant, but when you said R.C. Sproul didn't, there was suddenly a peal of thunder. <laughs> um, we, we know I don't know what that means, but <laughs> yeah. I thought it's worth noting. But to many, to many sort of church-going uh, Presbyterians of a conservative, you know, sort of uh, outlook, R.C. is the thirteenth apostle. So he's just kind of like he can't do anything wrong. And if it's not in R.C., it's just not important. Well, that sort of person is not usually very interested in the Touchstone Project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Chris, for a second there, I thought you were going to say he was the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to you, Glenn. <laughs> and I'm not going to insult him by saying that he was sincere. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, I know you're trying to say something here. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a couple of things, but I'll stay away from the Sproul question uh, or point. <laughs> um, I think we said <laughs> enough there. Um, one of the things we have going on, I think, that's interesting and promising in the academic world of theology is, um, is, you know, kind of goes under the title of kind of retrieval theology. It, it kind of uses a lot of the, um, the, the skills that the resourcement theologians did. Um, but one of the concerns has been that the, the way in which we understand Christian teaching and the scriptures has been so ripped from that mere Christian um, center that, of course, it's being read from a, a whole host of angles that really have no strong continuity to Christianity. So the retrieval is really going back to that shared vision and context that the Christian doctrines and Christian teachings that are central to the faith originally arose. And so there's a strong look at, for example, what went into the interpretive practices that gave us the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, that all, you know, confessing Christians hold to. And, and then the second question is, you can't just throw those hermeneutical practices away when you hold on to the doctrine of the Trinity, because those two things go hand in hand. And so there's this retrieval of a lot of the ways in which the church approached scripture, the early church fathers, and the way that theologians across time have done it, to where Christians, I think, of all stripes are starting to retrieve the classical understanding of creation, for example, and its metaphysical world. And that becomes something of a resource for, for actually supplying a very rich understanding of Christianity rather than one that's continuously accommodating itself. So I was just curious if that kind of, um, that kind of approach from the world of systematic theology would be something very congruous or you know, in harmony with what Touchtone is up to. The, the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> let, let, let me a ask you, when you say resourcement theologians, are you talking about Roman Catholic resourcement? The, I mean, the well, pre-Vatican II sort of... Uh, I'm ready to Lubach and those guys. Yeah, yeah well, I think, I think they, they, they were attracted to some of the, the skills they did, not so much to what they found. Um, so, so a lot of the retrieval theologians were impressed by the way in which those resourcement theologians actually tried to go back behind some of these deep divisions and find out those, those points of consensus um, and what those teachings were before those kind of breaks happened. So retrieval theologians in kind of the, the Protestant world, for example, would, would find resourcement theologians attractive in a way that they were going back to draw the riches out of the tradition um, and kind of be impressed by some of the skills, even if they wouldn't buy into like De Lubeck's interpretation of it. Okay. Um, in general, um, in, in general, yes, Touchstone would be sympathetic, I think, to, <clears throat> to thinking about theology in that way. 
But when, and I have to tell you that I am simply not up to date on all of the theological trends that you're ta- you know, talking about, yeah, especially sure. in modest, modern Protestantism. Um, I've been trying to uh, juggle too many plates for too long <laughs> to be a, a great expert on, uh, on any one of them. Uh, that, but that's the way my uh, thought career has taken me. But when you start getting into technical questions of theological method and hermeneutics and so forth, you start getting past what Touchstone can do. Sure. um, And what Touchstone can publish, uh, because you're starting to get into technical theological matters. Uh, We sort of are trying to sustain an outline uh, within which uh, one would work. And within that outline, uh, one can get into things that are so de- detailed that you are no longer, that Touchstone can no longer do very much good for you. It's, yeah. And we always, and when we run into these things uh, as uh, in uh, contributions or uh, submissions to the magazine, we have to say, well, um, this is a good article, uh, but we can't use it because yeah. it's either too technical or it doesn't meet the three-way conversation test. That's a, yeah. oh, let, that's a let, test. Let's, yeah, let's hear about that. What's, what is the three-way conversation test, Steve? <laughs> the three-way conversation test is something that we started to talk about years ago when we got good articles from um, people who were mm, theologically conservative members of a particular church um, and which we editors, most of us, have some theological sophistication we could understand, uh, but we're not really very understandable to a, an intelligent member of the Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant communion. Um, the three-way conversation is not that if you're a Catholic, you can't talk about Catholic things, but you have to write in such a way that a Protestant or Orthodox standing by can see the relevance for the larger church, uh, the church to which they belong. Um, they, uh, it's not so much a matter of subject as a matter of, as a way of writing. Yeah. And I, I hope that that way of writing is something that Touchstone has historically cultivated uh, it's, it's like getting together uh, in a room where there are a gathering of people from different backgrounds and you see your buddy on the other side and then you go over and start talking to him. But the guy who's standing next to you who was involved in the conversation before hasn't the slightest idea what you're talking about or can only grasp very small parts of it. Um, that's not the kind of writing which, um, which we do. And it's usually fairly obvious that when we get a submission like that, that this does not pass the three-way test, even though it may be a very well-written and very orthodox piece of work. Yeah, I think that that, you know, that in every issue of Touchstone that I read, that's reflected in just the subjects and the titles. For example, let me, let me just, I've got the latest issue here, and uh, let me just read a few uh, titles uh, to kind of convey what I think you're saying, Steve. So on the 
cover or one of the cover articles, Fatherless and Childless, A Dereliction of Duty by Al, our friend Alan C. Carlson. Uh, Russia's Confessors. A, a Lutheran, uh, by the way. Oh, really? Russia, Russia, oh, oh, you mean Alan. Alan sure, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that, of course, surprises everybody about Alan is that he hasn't left uh, the particular communion of, of Lutheranism that he belongs to. Actually, I talked he, to him about... Actually, he has now. Oh, he has. So yeah. he finally went too far? <laughs> he finally... Well, I mean, we were kind of surprised at that. We were wondering how a member of the ELCA could put up with that. <laughs> it was one of those family churches. His family had lived in the Rockford, Illinois area for uh, for many, many years. It's not that easy to sure. abandon uh, the denomination. But finally, Alan is attending a, uh, and, and his family are attending a Missouri Senate Church now. Okay, okay. Which is kind of a relief to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the, way, the way I always put it when people ask me about that, because, you know, I've been with Alan a few times, and people know that I'm connected to him or know him, and they'll ask me, what, what, what's the deal with Alan and Lutheranism? I say, basically, you know, he's a genuine conservative in the sense that, you know, he's, he, he's the same as they used to be. It's everything around him that's changed. Well, he's just a Swede, and Swedes don't move as fast. <laughs> yeah. um, by, the, by the way, Steve, I, I, I can't not throw this in. Historically, I'm a 16th century specialist. Historically, Lutherans have never played well with others. <laughs> so it's you know it's not a surprise to me that that they're kind of late to the game with touchstone but i'm starting to join yeah mm -hmm. yeah well that's great now here are a few here are, here are a few others john paul ii at 100 which is an appreciation of his contribution to the larger church c.s lewis and geocentrism you know that that mm. in and of itself just just sort of like is the story of touchstone dolly's wow. crucifixion salvador dolly so, you know, Dali. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. I never expected to see anything like that. But I, I couldn't find anything wrong with that article, although I really tried. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that's, that's what I mean by the literary and the orthodox and the conservative, and then this three way conversation. So, like, my, my first piece that I, I mentioned this to you last time we talked, the first piece that was published of mine in Touchstone was something on the Shakers. And, I th and as I was thinking about it, I thought, and who, because I, I wanted to use the name or the term nutty Gnostics. And I thought, who in the world would publish something that called the Shakers nutty Gnostics? And I thought of two <laughs> publications, you know, first things in Touchstone. And I said, well, I'm going to go for Touchstone because I like them a, a whole lot. And, and Jim, Jim Kushner liked it. And that's what, how it, that was my first uh, article in Touchstone. But anyway, but I think that gives you a, it gives our listeners a sense of what Touchstone is about. It's a great magazine. And, and, the, and I think Touchstone really punches above its weight, if you know what I mean. I mean, you know, Scalia, Anthony Scalia, I remember he was, he was a speaker at a Touchstone conference years ago, and I saw a picture of him there with Touchstone. I, would, I suspect he was, a, he was a subscriber. Maybe I'm, I'm assuming well, too much. Well, we know that his son uh, is a subscriber. Yeah. Uh, Father Scalia, uh, his, uh, Anthony's son, right. has been a right. Touchstone subscriber. I don't know if he still is, but... Um, Scalia uh, uh, was at the uh, at a Touchstone banquet that we held in Washington a few years. Well, it was quite a few years back now, um, and uh, 
along with a, a lot of other important Catholics who we were in, who Robbie George was really introducing to Touchstone. Right. But his son is a priest, um, and uh, and he is a subscriber to Touchstone, or at least he was last I knew. Mm-hmm. So, but I think that's probably uh, the case. There are lots of folks who are subscribing to Touchstone mm-hmm. who are pretty significant in their particular world. And uh, so I so when I when I say punch above its weight, that's what I'm getting at. There's a there's a sense of, of its reach. Uh, if you if you're published in Touchstone, you don't really realize just how you know sort of broad your audience is. We we don't uh, appear to have the weight of first things, um, but we've never tried to compete with them. Mm-hmm. Um, first things is a well, it began under Father Newhouse as a very well funded journal of um, religion and public affairs uh, that was overseen by a Catholic, uh, but, and, uh, but was not a Christian magazine. It was a conservative, uh, magazine. They accept, we, I think in the early years, we got a lot of uh, their, uh, a lot of their cast-offs got sent our way. (laughs) I don't think that's happening much anymore, (laughs) but, um, but it has the appearance of more weight uh, because of the length and and density uh, of its articles. But we've we've always regarded them uh, as a as another good magazine, um, and learn have learned what we can from it. We wish we could learn how to how it gets all that money, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, we we've always been sort of uh, struggling, and we have uh, magazine, and we've also um, oh tried to put some white spaces uh, in in the writing uh, so that it is not as difficult for you know we're, we're aiming for an intelligent ecumenical audience. Uh, but in intelligence and the sort of uh, concentration one needs to read uh, first things profitably is, uh, are two different things. Uh, and in the early years, of course, when Father Newhouse was still writing, we heard just too many stories of people saying, oh, yeah, I read first things and I'm going to get to those articles one of these days, but uh, I always, always read Father Newhouse and I never seem to get back to the rest of it. (laughs) Well, he spoke so, so, so kind of from, you know, from the hip, so to speak, you know, he was, and he was funny, but I, you know, I, I think he was, he was our friend too. Oh yeah. Yeah. For most most of the, uh, most of his uh, tenure at first things, although he said some, unpleasant things about Lee Pottles that we took yeah. issue with him for. But, I, remember, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Which was too bad because it was right at the end of his career. Right. Uh, but he was our friend and uh, gave us a lot of help and support. Well, speaking to the sort of the nature of Touchstone, uh, just sort of fleshing it out a little more, I've, I've always, when I think about Touchstone and, and First Things, I'm on good terms with both magazines. I love them both. In fact, I, I'd love to have Mark Bauerlein, one of the editors at First Things on the show, 
talk about first things a little bit sometime. But um, I think, you know, and I mentioned this to you before, Steve, there's, a, there's more of a kind of devotional quality to Touchstone, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's not like our daily bread or something. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it, it, but, but there's, it's clear that when the writing, you know, when you read something in Touchstone, you have a, a, you know, a very serious and devout person reflecting upon something. Uh, when I read something in touch or in first things, sometimes I'm not entirely sure that's the case. It's almost as though it's strictly <laughs> academic prose, if you get what I mean. A little more abstract than Touchstone tend, tends to be. Right. Well, um, yeah, and, and I would add that, you know, when I was trying to explain the difference between the two to my wife, I said that if you're going to find an article on art, on uh, literature, on Lewis or Tolkien or Chesterton or something like that, I bet nine times out of 10, it'll be in touchstone rather than first things and maybe more than that. Right. So yeah, I think there, there's right. a, there's a different kind of focus in the magazine as well. Um, that, well, you, you mentioned that first things was really a, a public affairs or something to that effect in its origin. I, you know, I can, I didn't know that, but I can really see it. Their, their, their emphasis is really in a different area. It's not bad. It's just different. Right. That's, that's how we would put it too. Yeah. And um, mo most of us um, are readers of first things too. And, uh, but, uh, but we all miss father Newhouse. Right. right, <laughs> right. Say what, say one of the things that I think has been really neat to see is the revival of your annual conference. I know you couldn't do it this year because of the COVID thing, but uh, you know, last year's conference, you know, uh, was, Head, you know, every speaker was a headliner. The, the year before when, when I was part of it, Patriarchy, it was sort of like, can you believe that they were, they actually had a conference entitled Patriarchy in this day? <laughs> and then you had this list of, you know, really high quality speakers. Uh, and then we had Milo there. And I don't know, remember if you, I don't know if you remember that, but, but uh, Rachel Fulton Brown is uh, friends with Milo. And, you know, Milo is a kind of, uh, bomb thrower and he was there at the conference and actually contributed from the floor some interesting questions but it was one of those things where you say okay Robbie George Tony Esselin you know he had uh, Glenn Stanton from First Things you had uh, Jay Budajewski from you know uh, University of Texas you know you had Nancy Piercy you just had this great list of speakers I think uh, and it was at Trinity if I remember right uh, uh, the, the uh, divinity school there or is it was is that right is it at trinity or was it at uh it was at trinity and has been for the last few years right. uh, one of the members of our board was the uh, president david dockery right right so we had an in at trinity because of him and the book table there is like you know it's worth the trip just for the book table you know it's <laughs> sponsored by the guys out of uh out of Kansas, what, what's the name of the public? Eighth, uh, eighth Day Books. Book, eighth Day Books, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. just a book table to end all book tables. I mean, you just sort of like lose yourself in the book table there. They do nice work, yeah. Yeah. So this year that you had to cancel it, uh, is, the, is the theme of the conference that for next year just the same theme, or are you guys talking about something different? I don't know. Um <clears throat> we kick some ideas around the editorial table and, uh, and that's why it's important for us to get together, uh, as a, uh, you know, to, 
not just to correspond by email, but to actually get together and get a, what the Quakers used to call a sense of the meeting. <laughs> you really need to get together in person for that sort of thing in a, to be expressed in a genuine way. But I don't know what we're going to do, whether we're just going to, because history is changing so fast right now, we might decide to address something, something else that, um, that we hadn't planned. Um, so I don't know. I can't answer that question. The reason Touchstone Conferences have revived is that we got a very generous bequest from one of our, um, from one of our readers <clears throat> who died and left a, a big chunk of money to be dedicated to the Touchstone Conferences. So we're, we're sort of back to living high uh, when, <laughs> when it comes to uh, uh, conferences. Our first real conference at Rose Hill in 1995 was probably uh, was one of those that was funded by a, a wealthy Orthodox layman. And boy, did we have a lot of money to spend. And so that accounts for the fact that we had Callistus Ware and J.I. Packer and um, mm, lots of other bigwigs. <laughs> yes, but but that's I guess that's my that's my point. You know, okay, when I was in Chicago and my son was at Wheaton, I'd go out and have breakfast or lunch with Jim. So Jim Kushner and I. So I was maybe once a year, you know, for like three or four years, we'd get together, and I'd drive into that neighborhood uh, where Pat. Patrick Reardon's churches, and right next door is the building that houses the, or it's just the house that houses. It's a house, you know, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Fellowship of St. James and the, and the, the work of uh, not only Touchstone, but also uh, Salvo, and uh, other things as well. Um, but I, I, I think that if anyone has, uh, you know, concerns about, you know, where their money goes, I think you guys... Uh, are really uh, marvelous and frugal uh, managers of resources, and uh, like I said, if you know, sort of the bang for the buck or punching above the weight, all that kind of stuff. I think that really characterizes what you guys are about. I think we've done a good job there. Yeah, we we certainly uh, um, handle money carefully. Right. Right. So. Um, tell us a little bit, you know, we're kind of getting to a point where we should probably start wrapping things up, uh, I think. Tell us about the future of Touchstone. Where do you think it's going to go? Uh, is there anything that we should know about, pray about? Uh, I, I, I just want it to, to continue and prosper. Uh, I hope uh, that it does. But is there anything that's in the works? Well, I doubt if any project of this sort will continue and prosper for very long. I, I'm rather skeptical about, about that. I think that the, the plant lives and dies and that we all have a, and we can hope that we are doing the Lord's work for as long a time as possible. Uh, there are a number of things that could smother the wick. Um, one would be persecution where the government actually is able to close down operations like ours. Another, which I've been concerned about for for a long time, uh, is actual dissension being raised within the 
within the group of people who are responsible for Touchstone. Um, because the sort of people we have um, working uh, on the project are not weak Protestants or weak Catholics or weak Orthodox. They're devout Catholics who know why they're Catholics and know why they're not Protestants. And the same is true for the Orthodox and the, and the Protestants, which looks, which it always looks to me like a tinderbox. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think only the prayers of the faithful uh, keep us together. It's not that we've had any big upsets along those lines yet, <clears throat> but I think, but for the grace of God, we, we could have problems. I see in the future the problems being more along the lines of two minds which may eventually emerge uh, in touchstone circles, which uh, are, they're not exactly what I would call the Eastern and Western mind, uh, because you have uh, elements of both of these in the West and in the East. Uh, but it's one is a mind that is controlled pretty much by discursive logic. Uh, and the other is a mind that is uh, controlled by a, a paradox. I think though there, there you have two minds, which are, which if they're not in conflict, you, they, it needs to be explained why. Um, and but maybe, maybe you guys need to leave with Chesterton more and less with Lewis or something. I don't know. It's just <laughs> no, Lewis was an example of, 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 the, uh, of the second mind that I mentioned. Um, he's a paradox. He's a man of paradox and certainly Chester, Chesterton is. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why, for example, Evangelicalism likes to claim Lewis as one of their saints, but it disagrees with so many things that Lewis agreed with. I mean, it's Lewis was opposed, strongly opposed to women's ordination, for example, on theological grounds. The, the, the leadership of the evangelical movement is not, as far yeah. as I can tell. Well, I, I think they're more and more, I, I would say that maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the center of gravity was male-only ordination, but I think it's shifted. I think uh, there are still hold, you know, there are still strongholds that are holding out. But I do think that, that if, if, to give people who are unfamiliar with Touchstone a sense of what maybe it's sort of our, our kind of bedrock or Touchstone kind of issues, we do uh, use the uh, the adjective Touchstonian. <laughs> but I think we, one, we often reject articles because they're not Touchstonian. Well, well the let, author let, doesn't know what this what what all of this is about. Yeah. Well, let me suggest a couple of them. One is male or male only ordination. I think that if you had an article submitted, you know, strongly advocating female ordination or the ordination of women, you wouldn't accept it. And I think the other is pro-life. I think you guys are completely and unapologetically pro-life. So those are the those are two sort of theo, sort of uh, social and theologically conservative commitments. 
that I see as being part of the touchstone uh, touchstones. <laughs> yes, I think you're probably right. And you know, we, we like to, to say that we are focused on the creed or the, or the mm, Vincentian canon. Um, and, uh, and we understand the, so we don't look at, uh, and we believe that patriarchy is, uh, is part of the creed. Uh, that you uh, that uh, you begin with God the Father Almighty, believe right. in the Trinitarian statement, and all Trinitarian statements are inherently patriarchal. Uh, so, and so that's it's not exactly that, and so within that context, we reject women's ordination. Now. Okay. There are there are technic more technical reasons, but we, it's pretty much water under our bridge. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We don't even really consider these. We used to talk about them a lot more than we do, but we're pretty f fixed in our you know pa patriarchal uh, cave. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's not something that we even think should be on the agenda. Right. Right. Uh, and yes, we don't accept anyone who said uh, any articles from people who say, we need to really talk about this. No, we don't. <laughs> neither well, neither does the PCA. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I wish that we weren't talking about it. I wish we yeah. just put it all to bed. But, but anyway. <laughs> Pro-life is yes. Yeah, um, right. right. To, to us, certainly that's mere Christianity. Yeah, we, and, and uh, the three of us are in complete agreement with that. And I think our listeners uh, – needed to hear that because I think uh, that's an important thing for them to know because I know our listeners would say that's great to know that Touchstone has those commitments. Um, anyway, we should probably wrap up. Is there anything you want to ask uh, in conclusion, Glenn? Anything you've uh, maybe Not, been thinking about want to say? I, I, nothing to ask. I just wanted to uh, register my uh, vote for ecumenical orthodoxy. <laughs> and um, I think it's it's an endeavor that we should all be working toward. Yeah. Right. right. And I think I think we'll be forced to come to that conclusion at the end anyway. Well, that, isn't that what? That's more or less what what the message of that Antichrist, the, the sort of the history of the Antichrist. Uh, I think I, I sense that. Well, what I think is going to happen, and this, of course, is my speculation, and it's not official Touchstonian dogma, <laughs> is that a lot of the things that we argue about will become clear within about the first three seconds of getting to heaven, and they won't be discussed anymore. There <laughs> <laughs> won't be issues. Um, yeah, I, I would actually, um, along with uh, the short history of Antichrist, I would go to Ben Franklin. If we don't hang together, we will most assuredly hang separately. No question. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So, Tom, anything you want to say or ask before we wrap uh, it up? Well, just it was wonderful to, to have this conversation. We definitely hope you'll come back and join us. I think you'll find that a lot of the topics uh, we have are def definitely commensurate with what with, with the touch, uh, Touchstonian uh, dogmas. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Very pleased to meet you and honored to be your guest today. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank you for participating, Stephen. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we'll probably have Jim on someday, uh, Jim Kushner, maybe uh, Alan, if Alan 
can can do it. There are just a number of, of people that we really like that are part of the Touchstone universe. Jim's been with it from the very beginning, and he knows a great deal more of, of the uh, history and background than I do. Sure. Well, it, it nevertheless, it's been great to have you, Steve. So as we wrap up, just want to say one thing before we, before we conclude, and that is, is that there's a conference coming up for the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And, of course, our show, the Theology Podcast, is one of several shows that are belong to this network. And uh, it's going to happen in Nash- Nashville, Tennessee, and it's October 1st through the 3rd. And we'd really love to see you there. I know Glenn is definitely going to be there. I'm working to be there. Tom can't be there, but may be there. I don't know where Tom is on that, but 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 we but trying anyways, to be there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're going to be uh, meeting in Nashville, and we'd love to love to have you uh, as part of that. So check out the conference at the Fight Laugh Feast Network and Fight, sign up for that. Laugh Feast. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very much a kind of a Mos- Moscovian thing. I don't know if you're. If you're aware of what's going on in Moscow, Idaho, with Doug Wilson and Peter Lightheart and all those guys who were kind of part of New well, St. Andrews College up there, I know, I know a little bit about them, but not very much. Well, anyway, that's that's a there's a kind of a very Chestertonian Calvinism that is char- characterizes that whole kind of network, and uh, so fight, laugh, and feast. Uh, I think sort of are, express the idea that we should be happy warriors uh, in this uh, this whole matter of, you know, Christendom <laughs> and waging, uh, the, you know, fighting the good fight. Well, I do remember that Mr. Chesterton used to toss buns up and catch them in his mouth <laughs> for the amusement of children. <clears throat> well, I can imagine some folks in Moscow, <laughs> Moscow, Idaho doing that too. <laughs> Anyway, well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast, folks, and we uh, we hope to have you back for the next show. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.